0: Hello, and welcome to the Better, Faster, and Happier podcast. I am Nancy Elwawan, and this is the podcast where we discuss with remarkable people across different industries about the steps they are taking towards a better, faster, and happier organizational environment. So today, I've got Oren Davis as my guest. A bit about Oren. So in 2010, he successfully achieved a PhD in Positive Organizational Psychology, has then gone further in conducting research on flow, creativity, hypotenuse, um, hypnosis, sorry, and mentoring. He's a startup advisor who's helped early stage companies enhance their value from proposition to human capital. And he also acts as a science advisor for Happify and writes and speaks avidly about culture and people. And so now you are consulting with a focus on making workplaces great uh, to work, and it seems like you've come a long way. Uh, is there anything I've missed out about your background? Because it's a phenomenal resume that I've been reading about.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm also an HR consultant. Companies with their workplace culture, their hiring, diversity,
0: inclusion, and things along those lines. So you've, it seems like you've really dabbed into like across different areas and businesses. Then,
1: Yeah, it's, it's really what Making Workplaces Great Places to Work is uh, very much about, is the human capital side of it, enabling people to really do their best in the workplace, to enjoy their work, and to make the most of their skill sets that they bring
0: to the job. comes to mind when I say better, faster, happier organizations.
1: So I don't know that organizations really need to be faster, um, but uh, better often it means that they've got the right people doing the right jobs and really loving it and sharing their uniqueness with the world through their job and that also is going to make them a lot happier
0: so it's interesting that you said um faster is not necessarily something on your mind when you think of these three things and i just want to know why because i guess um when we look at Agile and Lean and even the basic of this introducing Scrum into most organizations, it's often with the notion of wanting to move faster. So why is that not something that really jumps to mind to you?
1: Because I think we often trade off authenticity for speed. Mm.
0: But then if we think about, I mean, the narrative we hear, market is moving fast. And it's either you move as fast as the market or faster or you die. So it's this whole digital Darwinism Narrative that gets played, so how do you compensate for that then? I would say
1: that that's looking at the wrong question. It's not a matter of move faster or die. it's innovate or die. And the innovation don't mm. need to be an authentic innovation. It's got to be something real mm. if you, you you can move really fast, you can say a lot of great stuff, but sooner or later it's going to come down to do you really have something and have you really made something? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that just takes time.
0: but then I guess. I I like the spin that you said, like, it's really about innovation and authentic innovation. What is authentic innovation to you?
1: The thing is where you've actually made some kind of real improvement to things. You have changed a system for the better. You've made it possible for people to live their lives uh, in a more effective, more enjoyable, more efficient, more uh, real way to them that's closer to the way that they want to live it.
0: Mm. So in a practical sense, how would you go about doing that? Because I guess with a lot of these things, it's one thing for it to be said, but how? what does authentic innovation translate into everyday activities in the workplace? Well, for one thing,
1: you'd probably be spending a lot more time kicking back and relaxing because you're probably doing a heck of a lot of work that you don't really need to do. Um, but that's people talk about that as the difference between working hard versus working smart, but it's also a matter of people are not really coordinating with one another. They're not necessarily trusting each other enough or necessarily taking the requisite moment to think about really what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they connect with other people and how their work integrates with the work of other people. And consequently, there's a lot of wasted time and effort in that just in, just in that lack of trust and lack of coordination in um, the lack of ability for people to tell one another what they think, the ability to disagree, uh, the ability to presume good intentions, uh, these things that fall under psychological safety and trust actually inhibit our ability to communicate, to coordinate, to work well together. And that means that we're doing a whole lot of things to jury rig our work to fit with the work of other people. And to actually do things in a way that, you know, other people are going to quote unquote like or appreciate or value.
0: Leadership is planned or planned that they're going to release certain X and Y features into the market by the end of the quarter. It's often treated as a a trade-off or a negotiation um, type interaction. And I think that really makes it hard to kick back and relax and focus on quality. And maybe that's why there's a strong focus and push for it to move faster. So I guess my, my, my thought really is that everything you've said is great and it's what I align with, but if this doesn't come from leadership, it becomes really difficult to turn into reality.
1: On the one hand, that's definitely true. On the other hand, every leader needs a team. If the people aren't following the leader, if the people are not on board with that, it's really quite amazing how much a company can fail because people are not on board with the leadership either.
0: But if it's... if. As a, like, let's say the company in, in thought right now is a startup and an entire team leaves. They would feel that impact straight away. But I often find that even though people leave, a lot of these larger corporations can still carry on with things as nothing happened.
1: But uh, it's not necessarily a matter of the team leaving so much as the team not necessarily executing. And that happens all the time. You need the team to be on board to execute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The psychological safety, feeling like you can make a contribution, feeling like you are allowed to say, I'm on board, I'm not on board, this works well for me, this does not work well for me, this is something I can do, this is something I can't do. Just the ability to speak your mind on that, and that if you've got objections, just to know that you feel like you can make those objections and feel like
0: you're hurt. Right. Just the idea, or just to create an environment where someone – can safely speak up will make or break or at least increase your Mm -hmm. psychological safety and therefore the chance of people buying into your leadership. Is that what it is you're getting to? Because that's what I'm understanding at the moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even if you do have objections, just the fact that you can voice them, the fact that you can talk about them, that you can say like, look, here are my problems with it. And that you can actually go back and forth with somebody else on this. Uh, I'm going to borrow from a personal experience. I, I remember working on a team and. You know, my team leader wanted me to do something, and I thought it was kind of odd. I thought it was kind of crazy. But she and I had the kind of relationship where I could raise that objection to her. And she listened empathetically, and she said, you know, listen, I understand where you're coming from. Here's why we may need to do this anyway. And, and, you know, she was able to just explain the difference of opinion. We could work through the difference of, of opinion. And because I knew that we could do that, you know, I also trusted in her leadership. I respected her leadership. And it meant that like, you know, over time as we built that trust, it could get to a point where she'd be like, Hey, can you can you get this done? And I think like this might be crazy, but like, you know, I know we don't have time to talk about it, but I know she's got a good reason. Mm. So I might just push it through anyway, even if I object. And I know that if I've really got an objection, she'll either back it or at least that she'll listen to me and take my objection into account.
0: So I guess the the really kind of takeaway here then from what I'm understanding personally is listening just creating an environment where people listen and people can genuinely bring their authentic self forward and i guess that to a certain degree feeds into authentic innovation just the fact that people are able to have these dialogues in the first place
1: well it's also just it's not just the listening it's the ability to see the other person's point of view my team leader could see my perspective Mm. and Consequently, whatever, if she was going to override my perspective, I mean, she had the authority to override me anyway, but she chose to do that in a way that, you know, reflected trust and that showed that she heard me and that she understood what I was saying, why I was saying it, and that, you know, even though she feels she needs to override and, like, you know, we really need to do this her way, that she could explain, like, yes, I understand that you feel this way and that you think that this is a bad idea for this reason and that reason. But we still need to do it for this reason, which was not part of your original consideration. I mean, she obviously put it much better than that.
0: That's such a that's such a unique, well, not unique, but that's such a great example of showing empathy, right? Um, but it's just empathy in a business setting within a, a healthy conversation. I think what I've seen personally is the lack of empathy, the the lack of an environment that truly listens ultimately creates this really frustrating environment and people end up hopping from one company to another, hoping that the next situation would be better. Now, um, away from the, the kind of like, um, from that topic, I'm really interested in finding out, um, when it comes to, I guess when it comes to a success story, can you tell me Anything that, or anything from a, a recent success story, either personally or with one of the companies that you're working with, uh, when it comes to better, faster, and happier organizations.
1: Well, I've seen a whole bunch, but ironically, uh, some of the best success stories I've had have been situations where I've gotten people to just sit down and listen to each other. Um, places where, like, I've done some executive coaching where I've talked to the C-suite and I've basically, you know, they're having disagreements; they need to get on board with each other. And, you know, what I kind of what I kind of did was just go in and say, look, you know, you all need to listen to each other. You're not listening to each other. You know, sit down, find out what the other person says, reflect back, make sure that you're assuring the other person on your team. And then, you know, you're able to reach a consensus once you all have understanding. And that that has to do with like even strategic differences, uh, division of labor differences, who's doing what, who's got the ball, um, who's actually got the helm, and like that, that aspect of corporate culture, um, just deciding what's going to go on in the C-suite actually is is uh, one of the success stories that I've, I've got. I've got several of those actually in the, last, uh, in the last year or so. Just a bunch of those come to mind.
0: Do you think that we do enough C-suite coaching from your personal insight and your experience? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because um, I think when we traditionally look at um, – Agile, because I've worked as a Scrum Master for several years now, and it really is that the teams need coaching, but you, they, the leaders who bring these Scrum Masters and Agile coaches in, they often truly forget that they also need coaching. So what, what are the kind of takeaways that you've had from coaching that, from that success story and coaching those C-suite members?
1: So there are a couple of them. One of them is that just showing somebody that you understand just being able to demonstrate that you do understand um is actually one of the most important things you can do and that that would be the like i i would give that i give that a full stop because it's one of the most important things that i see missing yeah as i'm as i'm working with a whole Mm -hmm. lot of companies even when i'm doing like hr consulting when i'm talking to companies about how they hire um, it turns out that they're not writing job descriptions very well, partly because they're not really listening to their teams, and they're not even, you know, looking carefully at what's going on because they just be like, well, we got to hire. We need to just do this quickly. I don't know. I want to be able to just make a position as I go along. And a lot of people don't want to admit that openly. But they don't necessarily talk with the relevant stakeholders and just sit down and listen and say, what do you need? What do you need from this new hire? What does the team need? Like, talk to the team members. What does the team need? Talk to the clients. Like, what what is my team not providing that my new hire should provide? Talk to the C-suite. Talk to your peers. Find out exactly what your needs are and hear from everybody else. And also, for the record, get somebody to hear you and reflect back. And I, I found personally, you know, in my personal development, it's funny, I just had a conversation with a friend today about this. And one of the things that makes this friend such a blessing to me is that you know, when I say stuff, he'll reflect it back. And it's like, okay, this, this gives me another way of hearing myself and to understand what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, because as I see how he reflects it back. And by the way, he is an executive coach also. So you know, it's just interesting that, uh, you know, you got two different executive coaches talking to one another who, you know, show reflection. And, you know, like when, when we're hiring, when we need to hire somebody, When we speak out to our team, what our needs are, and our team reflects that, what they're hearing that our needs are, that gives us a clue whether we're expressing our needs as effectively as we believe we are. Because if we're not, then you're going to have a really bad job description.
0: Yeah. So this then kind of brings me to probably my next question also really is when it comes to implementing that successfully, so getting people to reflect, what are the step-by-step things that you do? or some of the kind of best practices that you've seen around to help enable that? Because I think that is definitely something that a lot of people can benefit from.
1: So I think the first thing is to suspend judgment. Take what they say at face value. Don't don't analyze it necessarily at first. Begin by suspending your judgment. Like whatever they say, whatever they say, it's okay. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it bothers you. It doesn't matter if you disagree. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you've got huge ideological differences with this other person. For starters, whatever they say is okay. You just take it, face value. Mm. You, want to, you want to just process the what, not the motivations, not the other information, not the implications and so on. Just, just take the what, start there. What have they said? From there, you want to just get an understanding of the meaning and then add in Mm. the other concepts. You know, what else might they be meaning? What context leads them to say this? Um, What do I know about the person? What do I know about the the context? What don't I know? Right? And this is the sort of thing where you have to do it step by step at first. It It sounds like a kind of an onerous process. But as you do it step by step and practice it over time, it becomes much more fluid and integrated. And once you understand what you know, what you don't know, what they said, what you see in the context, and then you do the analysis in your own head and you feed it back, you don't want to feed it back word for word. You want to feed it back with an interpretation, but let yeah. them know it's signal that this is an interpretation. You know, for example, you might say, so if I'm understanding my, then you are saying right now, it's by saying you're under my understanding of this means I'm letting you know I've interpreted, I've done some interpretation of what you said, I'm not just Parroting back. If you don't think you've got that down, then you might just say, "So, are you saying that?" And then parrot it back to make sure you have got it down. Especially if it was a long or complex thing, or you know, feel free to ask questions before you do all this.
0: Right? Are you, yeah. Are
1: you saying it's like this? Or are you saying it's like that? Do you mean? What do you mean by this? This, this word? Are you meaning it this way? Or just make it open ended? You know, what do you? I, I'm not understanding what you mean by this. And sometimes you may have to reveal your own biases. You know, in my experience. This word means this thing, or this concept looks like this. And so I want to know, are we on the same page about how we operationalize this construct?
0: But I guess where my thought is really going to as you're saying that is for you to have an environment in your organization that encourages people to reflect and to analyze and to validate if what they've heard is what you've understood. You need to take your time. However, or what what's been told to them is what they've understood exactly
1: so and what people don't think about when they're in that big rush is what is this going to cost us if there was a miscommunication
0: mm. yeah we definitely never talk about yeah <laughs> those
1: are expensive
0: yeah that's actually a really interesting way of seeing and it that's
1: why i say you know people are going so fast <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, people, people are worried about going so fast. It's sort of like, well, if you're going so fast, remember that there is a speed accuracy trade-off, and what happens? Can you afford the inaccuracy?
0: Huh. Companies don't ask no, that No, I mean, I'm thinking about, like, your standard project management risk analysis, and it's just mainly, like, I don't think it's ever been, or at least I've never heard that from that angle of what are the consequences if this goes bad? Or if we make a wrong decision, what are the consequences there? Because it's almost kind of like, by you acknowledging the negatively, the negative outcomes or the consequences if things were to go wrong, maybe in a weird way that allows you to say, ho, 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 we need to take a step back and rethink this before we jump to any conclusions. It helps to do that. Because it brings that possibility of failure closer. Yeah.
1: Right. But the thing is that if there's no possibility of failure, there's no real possibility of success either. You're pretty much just running Mm -hmm. in a hamster wheel if there's no, like if you can't fail, how in the world would you be able to succeed? You're not really taking any risks. And you're not really going outside of the hamster wheel. You know exactly where you're going. It's very clear what's going to happen so there's no innovation in that, or at best, the, in, the innovation is incremental. That doesn't. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not important to have the version, you know, two point oh one and two point oh two. They're very important, but that's also not an. That's not a big innovation. That's not what people are really talking about. When and that's not what we're talking about when we say authentic innovation. But when people talk about innovation, they don't. They're not meaning you know version two point oh one. They're talking about version three.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So we talked you mentioned failure, which brings me to a thought in my mind is when I think of failure, personally, I think that's, as a human, that's something that I personally struggle with, just the acceptance that failure will happen. So I'm curious to know, when it comes to better, faster, and happier organizations, or in your case, just better and happier uh, organizational environments, what's one area you would really like to improve?
1: Personally or... You know, that I want to see improve in the world.
0: Both? Really? I'm curious to hear both.
1: Okay. I mean, personally, um, I, still, I still struggle with the, um, with the, you know, with trying to live authentically in a fast world. And there's, there's a balance that you need, right? Because the problem is if you, if you focus too much on authenticity, you really, you, you miss a lot of things and a lot of things go by and you just don't, you, you can't move with the world whereas yeah. you know if you want to move with the world the, more, the world is moving too fast to be as authentic as many of us would like to be and so there's there's a trade off and i still feel like i haven't gotten the exact balance i want of like being able to swim with the current at the right time and swim across the current at the other time and just tread water sometimes and maybe let maybe let it carry me or just even you know try and get to the bank take a rest or even swim backwards a little bit if i feel i need to but there's, there's definitely a definitely balance, yeah. and I think you know that there's there's a level of wisdom that you get as you as you swim the river. Uh, you you get a you get a better and better sense. And I, you know, one of the mountains I'm climbing to mix to mix the metaphors, but one of the mountains I'm climbing right now is understanding exactly how to navigate in that in that river. Now in the business world, I, I want to point out something funny because I'm, I'm going to throw the speed back in there for you. You know, everybody loves this phrase, fail fast, fail often. Okay, great. I'll tell you what. If you want to fail fast and fail often, do it in your communication and get all your miscommunications out. Fail fast and fail often in your communication. Let's all find out, wait, so is this what you meant? No, that's not what I meant. Oh, well, I just failed. Do those failures. Do them all. And that way you can all get on the same page. And in that way, you know, in a very real sense, those are also experiments, right? If you say, if you and I work on a team and you say something and I reflect back what I understand, not just what I heard, but what I understand, that's actually a gambit. Mm. But I'm offering this gambit, you know, did I get it right? And if I didn't, I really do want to know quickly. Right? It's a prototype understanding of your communication.
0: That's really interesting. So this is definitely like I'm thinking my, my mind is going at 100 miles an hour right now. And I'm thinking about what if we were to create retrospectives around improving communication? Because I think at the core of it, because our workforces are becoming a lot more diverse people coming from different ethnical backgrounds, language backgrounds, and just being human, we are so prone at miscommunication all the time that if we just have a conversation about, hey, did you understand what I just understood? And just being able to talk about that, I think personally, in my mind, that truly does allow you to create that better and also to a certain degree a happier environment. And maybe also to a certain extent faster, because as you said, you are failing fast, but also learning quickly from just improving how you communicate.
1: Yeah. And you hit on a really important point of both diversity and as well as inclusion. Diversity, I should point out, is not enough because if you don't have an inclusive culture, it doesn't matter what kind of diversity you have, you're going to lose it. But part of the inclusive culture Mm. is actually trusting in the the well-meaning vibe of your coworkers. And so, for instance, if somebody says something that I find offensive, I'm gonna. I want to start by thinking this person doesn't mean to offend me. This person just doesn't realize, you know, what has been said. And it's sort of like Hamlin's Razor really applies here. Hamlin's Razor states: never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity. And in this sense, you know, if we're willing to listen to each other, you know, I hear. But if somebody says something offensive, I hear what they say, and I, and I say. You know, I'm understanding this, but because of my background, I am also understanding this thing and that thing. Are you understanding that as well? And I'd be good that they're not. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, that gives them the chance to be like, oh, wow, I did not understand that. Okay, I just failed here. I'm sorry. I now have a different understanding. I can reflect back that I've got this new understanding that I've acquired from you, and now we are communicating on the same
0: page. I just, it's just making me think right now about just a question of like, how diverse is your language in, and yeah, it's not really communication. Cause when I think of communication, I think of the tool in which I communicate in, it could be Slack or an email, but in terms of the language that is being used to communicate in, I don't think we look at diversity and inclusion from that narrative in a lot of organizations. So often, what I've seen working with teams, is, and this predominantly tends to impact in the better space and to a certain degree, the happier space, is that people's inability to to, to speak the language of the group that they've joined to so the company that they've joined really slows them down, and it leaves a sense of frustration mm-hmm. because you come with these great ideas great experiences, innovative minds and you want to add to this culture to this organization to this group that you've joined but simply because you can't speak in that language with them that i i can imagine that leaving a sense of frustration it's almost like going to a foreign country completely and you don't have your phone with you or no there's nothing there with you that allows you to kind of to speak the language of the person of the country Um, that you're visiting and that feeds to that frustration. And that I can imagine that adds and creates fear to a certain extent.
1: Ironically, not just in you.
0: hmm, No, absolutely not. So I imagine that
1: creates fear, not just hmm, in you, but also the native. I mean, just think about how, like you know, in the example you gave, you know, you dropped in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, you got no phone, no nothing, no way of communicating. And what's funny is everybody in that country thinks you're an idiot because you don't speak the language. And whereas in fact you've got so much to contribute, so much to offer, and mm. yet they can't understand you. Now the most interesting thing is now flip that and think about how many think about how immigrants feel in Western countries. Right? People people from non-Western countries that immigrate to Western countries or you know, those of us from Western countries who immigrate yeah. to non-western countries, and however you want to define those, you know, constructs. But even when you're just going from one country to another country, or where you're going from one area that speaks a certain language to an area that speaks a completely different language or dialect. You know, we, we often forget that when we're listening to somebody with a foreign accent or when we're listening to somebody who's stuttering through what is our native language, that actually, they may be really, really brilliant. They just haven't quite learned our lingo yet.
0: And I and I think there's the idea that lingo, language, is fixed. It's not. It's constantly developing. It's constantly reflecting the, the group of the people um, that are currently there in the present time. And I think at the end of the day, when it comes to the way you choose to, to speak and communicate in the workspace, even if, if all hell breaks loose, I think what we should try and really do is picture that moment you were on holiday and you tried making an order for your favorite dessert, but you have no other way to communicate to your waitress or your waiter and that frustrating feeling that you've had. Now you got to go back home and offload. Now some people are actually in that position every single day from Monday to Friday. And I can't imagine how limiting that must feel individually and also just limiting to the team and how it just deprives the organization from a bright mind that truly could make or break them.
1: Yeah. And we definitely see that all the time and, you know, even more than that and, it's not, it's not even just an accent of foreign language. It's the quiet people. It's the people that are a little bit more shy or who are a little bit more introverted yeah. who when they see that the team has got this entire back and forth dynamic, they may have this brilliant idea but they, they don't want to speak. I'll tell you a true story out of my business class. I teach uh, business students and I, I break them into exam teams and at one point uh, this team was going completely the wrong direction. They completely failed the project. And as I'm going over this with them, I'm I'm noticing that one member of the team, like most of the team is arguing with me, debating, you know, professor, no, it's not like that. You know, really, we are correct. And I look at this one member of the team, the quiet one, she hasn't said a darn thing. And during the exam, and, and during the exam session, the team session, she was silent most of the time. And I asked her to stay afterwards, and I said, you knew, didn't you? You knew they were going the wrong way. And she said, yeah, I knew. And I said, and I pointed out that like, you know, the fact that she didn't speak up, her team failed the project because she didn't speak up. She knew they were doing it wrong. And I looked in her eyes as I was like going back and forth with the team, as the team is arguing that they're right. I look at her eyes and I can see she knows. She knows they're wrong. She knows I'm right. She can see exactly what line of logic I'm presenting, even though her team doesn't. And I saw that during the exam too.
0: It's really interesting that you just gave that example because there's, I forgot exactly where this is, but this is inspired from the google experiment experiment where they had two teams um and they really coached one team around psychological safety and they kind of left the other team in the dark but what they really what the conclusion was with this is that our industry and the world that we're we, we find ourselves in and progressively will find ourselves in in the future is that the dialogues you have truly make or break your organization's and we are in a, knowledge, a knowledge-based industry, which means that we create value as a result of knowledge being exchanged. But there's only one way that can really happen, and that's communication. Unless you can come up with a machine that can read my mind and read your mind and then put the puzzles together. But AI isn't there yet. <laughs> or I, I doubt it will get to that point. But who knows? I'm not a fortune teller. But it's this idea of don't... Undermine the value of communication and dialogue because it's needed. If you're not getting people to talk with each other, either within the teams or across departments, you truly, really do have a problem.
1: Yeah, and funnily enough, the, uh, now
0: I guess, uh, mm, enough,
1: the slow development of understanding is actually a faster way to go.
0: Yeah, because you're taking your time and you're thinking about quality and value of understanding rather than volume of I want to understand everything as much.
1: And you're doing the sell, fast, sell, often thing.
0: You've given me a lot of food for thought here, (laughs) which is great. Um, So we've got um, one more question to really ask you, and that is we're really curious to know about tools that you consistently use or love. And these tools can also come in a form of books. So what are you reading at the moment, or what are you raving about when it comes to a tool that you frequently use? to help this better and faster and happier organizational futuristic environment? Wow,
1: I've got, I've got a long list. I'm also, I'm also the sort of person who's reading like six books at a time, so. Um, Shoot them. Uh, it, it's, a habit I've, it's a habit I picked <laughs> out for them. better for work. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, first of all, I, I love the systems that let you convert from calendar items to emails to tasks and all that stuff. Uh, those are really good systems, I enjoy those. Um, one of the other things I like is absolutely meditation. To actually take the time to meditate, to think, um, to find out what's on your mind. The, the going for a walk thing, I, I do that if I need to clear my head. Um, I also like whiteboarding, like on my own. Like on my own, I, I want to just you know go in a room with a whiteboard and just see if I can brain dump and find out what's on my mind. I love this brain dump concept, which I picked up from uh, David Allen's uh, GTD. But I, I love this brain up notion, and I do it a lot. Uh, me and my sketch pad, or me and my whiteboard—it's uh, a wonderful thing to do. And um, another one of my favorite techniques, uh, when I've got you know some kind of block that I got to get around, is uh, what's called a force mashup. And uh, an example of this comes from a, a story from my classroom: is, uh, is telling, asking one of my students who is struggling to explain a theory, right? How is your theory like a banana? And, you know, just throwing in this crazy new element, uh, you know, that will that will force you to think about it in a different way, because now you have to make certain connections. So when I'm trying to think about something, uh, you know, I'll just kind of look around the room, grab a household object, be like, OK, how is this like a desk lamp? And I got, and I got to come up with it. Like I'm forcing myself to to integrate whatever I'm thinking with a desk lab and you know, like a desk lab, it, it is, you know, like this, you know, like a pair of scissors, it is like this. And, and, you know, scissors and, and all my associations with scissors and there's some wordplay that will come in there and just, you know, relax, start making connections and see what you see.
0: I like that idea. I might actually steal that from you. So I'll let you know how that goes. Um, But on on that note, it's been great having you as a guest. Um, I've really enjoyed our brief and full of insights conversation. I hope you have as well. Yeah, thank
1: you, Nancy. I I really enjoyed your questions. A lot of fun.
0: No problem at all. So, guys, this was um, an an amazing episode, uh, part of the Better, Faster, and Happier podcast. Thank you for tuning in and listening. And again, remember, subscribe and switch on that notification bell. Otherwise, you'll miss out.